pray. Lord, we've already sung praises to you. We have already sung even confession of sin. We have sung about the glory of Jesus. Now, Father, we have come to talk about that one thing outside of the very Godhead, the Trinity, that you love more than anything else, namely your bride, your family, your children, your church. So help us now, Father, to better grasp what it is that makes the church unique and glorious in this world and how it is the the focus of your every thought and your every activity in this world to bring men to yourself in salvation or to judgment and all of it to the praise and glory and majesty of our King Jesus. Help us, Father, as we talk about a very practical topic this morning. May our hearts be under the sway of your Spirit so that we would not merely hear your word, but that we would be doers of the word, that we would walk out of here strategizing and planning how to be obedient to your word. And may this church grow in depth. Lord, we're not, we're not concerned about the breadth of this church unless and until it becomes too many, but it's the depth of the church that we've been called to focus upon. And so grow us deep, Lord, grow us deep, and protect us from error, we pray, in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. If you're new at Calvary Bible Church, you may not be aware, except through my prayer a moment ago, that we're in the middle of a series on the church. And one of the main ideas that I want to help us to embrace as we work our way through this series of messages is that the Bible depicts the church as a family, and it is God's family. And we, the church, are God's most precious possession. And I don't mean Calvary Bible Church. I mean the church all over the world and the local church, which we'll talk about in distinction here in just a moment. We are the oikos of God. We are the household of God. This is a common theme in the New Testament. We talk about being, well, Jesus talked about being born again into a family. You are born. How many of you have been born? (laughs) Most of you. Okay, I'm just wanting to see how much life there is. If you were born, you were born into a family. Rare exceptions to that, but you were at least physically born into a family. So it is in the spirit realm in the sense that in the spiritual realm, not in the spirit realm, but in the spiritual, in a spiritual way of looking at things, when you are born, you also are born into something. You were born into the household of God. And we refer to God as our heavenly, what? Father. We praise him for adopting us as sons and daughters, making us heirs together with his firstborn, Jesus Christ. This is all family language. This is Bible language, but it's family language. We are the household of God. Furthermore, we understand that there are two aspects of this family that we are all familiar with, at least in, uh, in the material world, in how we relate to one another. There is an extended family of God, and there is what I would consider, I like to call the nuclear family of God. The extended family of God consists of believers everywhere. The nuclear family of God is that group of people who meet together regularly as a church. This is our nuclear family. So, is there a church all around the world? Yes. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. We love them. We love to see them when we see them. We love to get emails from them. We respond in kind. We pray for them. They pray for us all over the world, and yet it's a different relationship, quite different in our nuclear family. These people who identify themselves as part of Calvary Bible Church, this is is our nuclear family. Now, I've suggested to you that most believers have a low view of the local church. To some, 
Church is something like the plural form of the word Christian. That is, the church is simply made up of a loosely affiliated group of individuals who kind of, sort of, believe the same things. The important thing, however, is that you're a part of the church, uh, that, that you're a Christian, but not necessarily a part of the church. The really important thing is, do you know Christ? And then the church is optional, they say. The problem with that way of thinking, however, is that the scriptures never make such a distinction. The scriptures don't speak like that. The inspired authors never talk like that about Christians and the church. And since we have our, our Bibles in our laps, maybe it would be helpful if we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is a, just a wonderful, wonderful passage of scripture that we're going to look at just briefly here and return to again. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Here is one of the two places in the New Testament that the church is referred to as the oikos of God or the household of God. So follow along with me now as I read 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. And Paul writes to Timothy, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, here's my question. When Paul speaks of the household of God in this passage, is he speaking of the extended church or is he speaking of the nuclear church, your nuclear family, spiritually speaking? Is this about the, the extended family or our nuclear family? Well, at the beginning of this chapter, let's just kind of do a survey of this chapter, Paul lays out qualifications for elders and, and, uh, and in verses 1 through 7. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. In the next set of verses, verses 8 through 13, he lays out the qualifications for deacons in the local church. In chapter 4, he gives instruction on how Timothy is to, to teach in the local church, what he should focus on and in verse 13, he tells Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, where all of this is happening. And where is it happening? It's happening in the local church. In chapter 5, he instructs Timothy about how to reprove an older man in the local church. He follows that up with instructions about establishing a list of widows in the church who will be financially supported by the church. Isn't that interesting? This, over 2,000 years ago, you think of these people as primitive. They were bright, bright people and undistracted by technology, right? They had just had to figure things out using their brain. And here they, they adopted a list. How are we going to identify the people who need help and who qualify for help? Because some people who need the help need to get a job. And some people who need help are qualified for getting help from the church, so, Paul established a way to come up with a list and identify who would be eligible to be uh, financially supported by the church, these widows. And then after that, chapter 5, verse 18, he talks about how to honor an, uh, an elder and how to protect the elders from false accusations, and we can go on and on uh, throughout 1 Timothy. All of these and more are important concerns that speak exclusively of the local church, not the universal church. You cannot read the scriptures, for example, to the universal church. No one person can do that. There are no elders and deacons over the universal church. He's clearly speaking about the nuclear family. And so in that sense, when he uses the term oikos of God, the household of God, he's not speaking of the universal church, but rather to the local church. And so when Paul refuse, refers to this, this is what he's talking about. And so when we read these texts, we understand that he's speaking to us as a church, Calvary Bible Church, and those who consider themselves members of this church. Once again, the elders of Calvary are unapologetic about the fact that, that God wants his people 
to have a high view of the local church. And again, I say, too many of us have a low view of the church, and it shows itself in practical ways. We, beloved, are not just a a loosely affiliated group of individual Christians who may or may not gather together on Sunday morning in this place or in that place. Rather, we are a family that is committed to being together. Um, In a couple of weeks, I'm going to talk about church membership, and, and, and this analogy from the Scriptures is going to become really, really important and almost hysterical as well. We are the household of God. We are purchased by the blood of Christ. The assumption of the New Testament is that when a sinner is born again, he's saved out of the world and into the church. He's brought into the church of the living God. And this is his family, where individual Christians find the most essential and practical expression of what it means to be a Christian. Now, last week we talked about the community of the local church where the central feature is the fellowship that we know as koinonia, right? Koinonia, the fellowship. We learn that fellowship happens when we actively involve ourselves in the lives of other members of the church in such a degree that all of the one another commands are fulfilled. Not all at the same time, but regularly it's happening. And, and there are at least 31 commands in the New Testament that are one another commands. Do this with one another. Do that to one another. Do this to one another. Um, 32 of them. And so this is where it happens in gospel community. People may have little else in common other than their love for Jesus Christ, and they serve one another. They confess sins to one another. They pray for one another. They support one another. They build one another up. They minister to one another in a manner that makes the invisible gospel visible. That is a critical phrase. Why do we exist? And you could say it with me. We exist to be to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things. Another way to say that is we exist to show the world what God is like and what Christ is like and what the gospel is like. And so when we talk about gospel community, we're talking about making the invisible gospel visible. We live in this world and we interact with one another in such a way that shows the world what the gospel, the invisible gospel is like. And the question that we need to answer and consider this morning, however, is how does God want us to practice the one another commands of Scripture? Has God given us any practical means by which we should obey these commands? And the answer is absolutely, yes, he has. And one of the primary means that he has given us is called in the Bible hospitality. Hospitality. In the time that remains, I want to offer six biblical truths about hospitality and how it relates relates to building gospel community. The two are inextricably connected. So let's start with a definition. Hospitality defined. What is hospitality exactly? Well, that's a good question, and if you were to get on Google like I did this morning, you would discover that uh, the definition, the dictionary definition of hospitality is this, the friendly and generous reception and entertainment of guests, visitors, and strangers. Now, here in the South, um, it's widely understood that we have something that folks up North don't have. Now, I, I speak as one who is from the North. I speak as one who, first time I... I spent a summer in Florida. I found out I was a Yankee and didn't know what that was. When I asked, my teenage friends around me said, you remember, you know, your history books, The War of Northern Aggression? (laughs) That wasn't in any of our history books. I mean, the Civil War, the Northern Aggression, you know, the the War of Northern Aggression. Um, But in the South, there's there's a bit of a different culture And maybe not as much today 
as back when I was young, but certainly it shows itself here and there even today. And as I said, it's called Southern hospitality. Southern hospitality. That means that people in the South tend to be friendly and courteous. Uh, young men are taught to say, or at least they used to be taught to say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. Strangers actually would greet one another by making eye contact. Look, I grew up in New Jersey. We were trained not to make eye contact. <laughs> I am dead serious. Remember my dad told the story of being in an airport, and he was getting his shoes shined, and he was talking to the guys next to him. And the one guy said, you're from Jersey, aren't you? And he said, yeah, how did you know? He said, because you haven't made eye contact with any of us since we've started this conversation. You're taught not to do that. I remember when I went to Tennessee for the first time for college, and I came home on a break. Uh, when I got to college, I was walking down the street in, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and uh, a stranger was coming toward me. And I did what everybody in New Jersey does. You turn your head away, you don't make eye contact, and you certainly don't say anything. And, uh, and this young man, who was significantly younger than I, uh, he had a big smile on his face, and he said, hello. And I was scandalized. I didn't know how to respond. <laughs> and it took about a semester for me to catch on. And then I went home to New Jersey, and I saw a stranger. I was about ready to pass, and I said, hello. And, and they ran off. <laughs> it's not like that in the South. Um, this is... This is different down here. The culture is a little different down here. And it's often referred to as Southern hospitality. The old term for it was simply civility. In the South, people tend to be more civil. It doesn't matter what's in their heart. They're just trained to be more civil. Even people you may not know, they would be hospitable to. We're, we're polite. We, we're respectful. When I say we, I'm changing my personal pronoun here because I, I've been here so long, some of it is rubbed off. And and some of it has went away, like most of my Jersey accent, praise the Lord. Uh, but we tend to be polite and respectful and enjoy inviting others over for dinner from time to time. Opening your home like that is, is certainly part of hospitality, but that's not the same thing as biblical hospitality. You can do all of this and not engage in biblical hospitality. So what is biblical hospitality? Biblical hospitality is all about ministering the sacrificial love and care of Christ to one another. Let me say it again, in case you're taking notes, you're going to need them in your small group. Biblical hospitality is all about ministering sacrificial love and care, the care of Christ to one another. So, for example, Jesus commands his disciples saying, love one another. So that's one of the one another commands I referred to earlier. And this is directly from the mouth of Jesus. Love one another, even as I have loved you. Now, how did he love us? Sacrificially. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what should mark the Christian community, along with devotion to God's word, is our love for one another. It's, it's an almost otherworldly kind of love when we are doing it right. Alexander Strzok, for example, observes, one of the key factors that helps explain the rapid expansion of early Christianity is the love displayed among the first Christians. This love did not go unnoticed at the time. The third century African writer and apologist Tertullian tells, tells us that the pagans of his day had acknowledged, they had to acknowledge the extraordinary love of the Christians. The pagans were forced to say, quote, see how they love one another, how ready they are to die for each other. In an ancient Latin Christian dialogue entitled Octavius, the pagan Cecilius criticizes the Christian. Now, this is a criticism, right? He's criticizing Christians, and notice what he says. Hardly have they met one another. They indiscriminately call each other brother and love one another. He thought that was utter foolishness. This, beloved, is hospitality by definition. We love each other openly. We love each other sacrificially. It's not just about being nice. It's not just being polite. 
I had an interaction with a man um, just out, outside next to my car yesterday. He was telling me about uh, the alcohol he likes to drink, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, he is doing that in the most polite manner I have ever heard. He was appropriately apologetic for bringing it up. And, and, uh, and I thought, boy, if this was Jersey, it would be quite different. But it's the way it is down here. But that's not... Being kind to one another isn't the same thing as biblical hospitality. That's not gospel community. Rather... Hospitality is about loving each other by sharing our lives and our devotion to Christ with one another in a manner that demonstrates to the world and to each other what Christ and his gospel are like. That is hospitality defined. i got five more points to work through, and so get ready. Secondly, hospitality practiced. How did the early believers practice hospitality? One of the one of the most significant ways was simply by opening their homes to one another. We see this all the way back at the beginning of the church in Jerusalem. If you would, just turn with me to Acts chapter 6. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2. We'll move through Acts here in just a minute. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And here's what happened, this famous passage of Scripture where everything seems to change when the Holy Spirit showed up. And that's exactly what we see at the beginning. The Holy Spirit shows up with power. The apostles begin speaking languages they had never learned. Uh, Peter preached that great sermon by which 3,000 people repented and came to Christ. Um, by the way, I was reading Acts this week, and, and in my notes I said 3,000 people. I realized earlier this week, just in the morning as I was reading the book of Acts from my own edification, that it, it specifically said 3,000 men. Now, assuming, on average, that most of those men were married and, let's say, had two kids. I mean, how many thousands is that? That's not 3,000. I mean, how many was that? 9,000? 15,000? 20,000? I mean, if it were families like the families in our church, it would be 100,000. <laughs> and then there were the authenticating signs and wonders performed by the apostles. I mean, the atmosphere was electric with excitement over what God was doing in Israel. And then Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, follow along with me if you can. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's why I said earlier, aside from loving ourselves, it's, I mean, I'm sorry, loving one another, not ourselves, we're all psychologized to some level, we're trying to repent of it. Um, aside from loving one another through hospitality, we love God's word, and, and, and here it shows up, very first thing. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the word of God, and to fellowship, that's koinonia, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were, watch this, were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all if, as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's amazing. And by the way, it may very well be that breaking bread from house to house had to do with sharing the Lord's Supper together in these little house churches. Um, in any case, we'll come back to that perhaps next week. But what I want you to notice is the phrase house to house. Now, this was interesting. When I went to Israel last year, I got to go to Capernaum, which was, uh, I mean, we went up to a lot of places. Uh, we were there. We only had a, we were there to teach and, and not sightsee, so we only got a couple of days to see things. But uh, the synagogue at Capernaum is just, I just can't wait to go back. If we don't see another thing, I want to go back there. 
because it just made sense out of passages like this. It made sense about why Peter, who lived in Capernaum, was a fisherman. I mean, we know where his house was. It's amazing. We know, very few things that, that history is absolutely sure of, but they know where his house was. And you could walk, I don't know, 100 feet or 100 yards, maybe 100 yards at the most, and be in the water, um, Sea of Galilee. This is where he lived. And they have the, the synagogue there. And between the synagogue and Peter's house and all around it are this reconstructed little boxes. And they were all kind of the foundations of the rooms of the houses. And you could almost make out what was the interior rooms and what were the doorways. And they were so compact. Can you imagine? Okay, so imagine this. You got Jesus living there. I mean, everybody wants to be near him. So many things happen just within easy walking distance of that little place. And you know what I think people did is they came and they just built their houses there. We just want to be near him. We just want to be here. Peter's over here and and the disciples, they're always coming through, and, and a lot of times they just live with us, and Jesus is right here behind us on this mountain, and he's praying at night, and he's coming to see, and all of it's happening right here. We want to be close to him. And so this house-to-house thing kind of evolved, and they literally built their houses so that you could walk out your front door, and you're basically stepping into someone else's front door. It's house-to-house. Now, I don't recommend that for practical purposes, but it was really interesting to see how little they had and how much they loved to be together. And the sacrifices they must have made to enjoy hospitality with one another. It's amazing, amazing. And so from house to house, the believers in Jerusalem opened their homes to one another regularly. And by the way, for those of you young people who might be attracted to this new rise of socialism in America and look to a passage like this to support it, forget about it. The difference is, uh, the difference is between people doing it because they can't help but do it because they love Jesus and they love each other so much that they willingly sell house and land and whatever else they have to minister to one another's needs. They do it freely, spontaneously, no one is coercing them. Socialism is when the government makes you do that. It's a big difference. But I don't want to get political. I just want you to think about that. This was the practice that marked the life of the early Christian church. And everybody around them saw it and knew it. Turn to Acts chapter 5. Chapter 5. By the way, if you uh, need a little help memorizing where things are in Acts Five dive. This is where Ananias and Sapphira take their big dive into the grave. Uh, but that's not the point I want to share here. Acts 5:42. And every day, watch this. In every day, 5:42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, there it is again. They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So now they're not just meeting together in house to house to take the Lord's Supper together um, and sharing meals together. Now that's where the apostles are, are, are doing the teaching. They're doing it in homes. And, and turn to me with, I mean, with me to Acts chapter 20, verse 20. And here Paul reminds the elders at Ephesus, he's, he's on his way back to Jerusalem by boat. He stops in Miletus, which is not far from Ephesus. So he sends a messenger and says, elders of Ephesus, come to the beach in Miletus, and they met, and they saw Paul there for the last time. And Paul takes advantage of that last opportunity for them to fellowship together by telling them some things. And one of those things is that he reminds the elders of Ephesus, quote, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. And we don't have time to look at all the scriptures this morning that apply to this, but the New Testament is full of references to all the kinds of ministries that took place in the homes of God's people. Ironically, I mean, if you, if you flip the page again, and maybe twice, 
and go to chapter 8 of Acts, we find a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus who was persecuting the church. He was the one who would be the great Apostle Paul one day. But here he's persecuting the church. He's, he's participated in the execution of Stephen. And later on he will say that he participated in other executions of Christians. And here's what it says, chapter 8, verse 3. That Saul of Tarsus began, watch this, quote, began ravaging the church, entering house after house, then dragging off men and women who would, uh, he would put them into prison. Why do I point this out? Here's why. When Paul was looking for Christians, he knew where to go. He knew where they would be. They would be meeting in homes. They wouldn't build elaborate church buildings like ours or like some cathedral. They met in their homes. All Paul had to do was find their homes. And then in the sovereign turn of events later on, this same man, after being arrested by Christ, would spend the rest of his life planting churches in homes all over the known world, in places like in Lydia's house and in Philemon's house, Nympha's house, the house of Aquila and Priscilla, the house of Archippus. And he would refer to the house in, in Lydia's house, or the house, I'm, I'm sorry, the church in Lydia's house and the church in Nympha's house. The point of this is not that we should uh, sell these buildings and start meeting in homes. That's not the point at all. The point is, how do you love one another the way Christ wants you to love one another? And the answer to that question is, you willingly open your hearts to one another. You serve one another. And one means by which you do that, one of the major means you do that, is by opening your home to one another, whether it's large or small. One of the things I love about my small group, I, I'm only in one small group, so I get to brag about my small group, is these, uh, these young guys who, as I've been there, one by one, uh, at least three of uh, the single men in our, our small group have bought houses. And one at a time, they'd buy a house, and we'd start meeting there. They'd get on the list of, of, of homes we're going to meet in. You walk in, there isn't any furniture. That's okay. <laughs> Doesn't have a woman's touch yet. <laughs> but we meet there joyfully. And then another one would buy a house. We'd put them on the list. Start meeting there. Nothing like meeting in a home. In their homes, they loved one another. They prayed for one another. They served one another and took the Lord's Supper together. Their homes became a place of worship, encouragement, accountability. They learned the scriptures in their homes. They enjoyed meals together in their homes. They rejoiced with those who rejoiced. They celebrated with those who celebrated. They wept with those who wept, those whose hearts were broken or disappointed or experiencing tragic loss. They were there for one another. This is Christian hospitality. It's setting your own needs aside, your own possessions aside, your own money aside, your own time aside, to serve one another practically and from the heart. This is Christian hospitality. It's not exclusively a ministry of the home, but it is a kind of ministry that takes place in homes more often than anywhere else in Scripture. If you know anything about the church and its history, then you probably know about Martin Luther, 1,500 years after the church began. Martin Luther and his wife, Katie, became legendary for their open home and liberal hospitality. Of their home, one historian writes, for that great house was always full to the brim. One of my sons, Josh, and his wife have always, uh, they, they longed to be married, and then they got married, and even before they were married, they kept saying, you know, we can't wait to get married, have a house of our own, we can have an open door policy, so that anybody who wants to come over can come over whenever they need to come over. And it's been amazing to see that over the years. Um, maybe it's not as free and clear open now that they have four children in the house. <laughs> um, but still, that's, 
That's the kind of attitude that the first century church had. Martin Luther's great house was always full to the brim. On a more personal level, level many of you know that for years, um, our own missionaries, Shannon and Danielle Hurley, used to use their home as their uh, center of their operation down there, their mission. In fact, uh, for a while, they had nothing but a rickety guard shack and their house. And everyone that they ministered to basically lived in their house. It was not uncommon for them to spend, I mean, to have like 20 people, no exaggeration, 20 people could be living at their house any given time. Uh, So when they bought their new house on the property they have now, they made sure they had room for another 20 people. And then eventually they built another building that could hold another 20 people. And you know what? So many people there have come to know Christ through hospitality, biblical hospitality. Now, I'm not saying that you have to go to the, that far. I mean, you know, you're probably not going to have 20 people. You'd probably get a knock on the door from code enforcement or something if you tried that. But this kind of extreme hospitality, even hearing about it, maybe, just maybe, it will pry open the drawbridge of your home a little bit. Maybe you're not going to let 20 people in, but maybe two or three or four. You see, beloved, your home may very well be the best tool you have to facilitate gospel community in the local church. This is hospitality in practice. But there's something else we need to consider. We've discussed hospitality by definition and hospitality in practice, and now let's talk about hospitality commanded. This is another one of those things. It's why I want you, why I think, and the elders think, that this series of messages will help you have a higher view and a deeper view of the local church. It's because we see these things as almost divine suggestions when many of them aren't suggestions at all. They're commands. The thing that really struck me this week as I studied the, this biblical priority was not so much the definition or the practice of hospitality. What, it, what really struck me was the fact that the New Testament doesn't present the idea of hospitality as optional. Rather, it comes to us as an imperative. What I mean by that, and I think what the biblical authors mean by that, is that we are commanded to be hospitable to one another and and to those outside. Listen to this sample of scriptures, and I'll just uh, reference in a couple of words where God commands us to be hospitable. Romans 12, 13. And you'll be quizzed on this on your way out. No. But maybe you'll be able to talk about it more intelligently if you write these references down. Romans 12, 13. Practice hospitality. It's an imperative. 1 Peter 4, 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Do you know why he says without complaint? Because we tend to complain. Hebrews 13.2, do not neglect to show hospitality. With 3 John 8, we ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. 1 Timothy 3.12, an overseer then must be hospitable. 1 Timothy 5.10, let a widow be put on the list if she has shown hospitality to strangers. I talked to you about qualifications for widows and for deacons. Here's a kind of litmus test for true spirituality in the early church, at least one of the questions on the test. You want to know if someone is really seriously following Christ? Find out if they're committed to hospitality. Do they ever have anybody into their homes? If she does not, then she is not eligible to be on the list for support from the church. Isn't that interesting? You say, well, that sounds harsh. It's not harsh at all. All Paul is saying, listen, people say to me from time to time, oh, you're an elder in your church. Uh, Wow, you were held to a higher standard. And I say, no. It's just you can't be an elder unless you're, you're meeting the basic qualifications of a Christian. 
You've got to be a Christian. You've got to be living like a Christian in order to be an elder. Plus, you have to uh, have some aptitude in teaching. Deacons. Uh, deacons, they don't have a higher standard to live up to. It's just you be a Christian. If you're not going to be a Christian in all the ways that matter, then you can't be a deacon. And it's the same thing with the, with the widows who needed help. Are you being a faithful believer? Are you trusting in Christ? And, and are you showing that you trust in Christ by being hospi- hospitable with the little bit that you have had or currently have? If not then don't consider him as even a possibility to be a deacon. And don't put her on the list, at least not yet. The early church viewed this as Christianity 101. After you embrace the gospel, you commit to attend services, you get baptized, you begin partaking of the Lord's table, and you open your home for ministry to others. This was basic to the New Testament. It was viewed as part of what makes an essential Christian. What is, what is the essence of Christianity? This is part of it. Why? Because it's commanded by God. When you think about the Ten Commandments, or we don't think about these other 31 commandments, and they're not even all the commandments. And, and we're not talking about living under some legalistic weight or this legalistic rule. Listen, if you've ever practiced hospitality from the heart, you just want more. It's not legalism to open your home. It's not legalism to serve Christ. Is it legalism to do what God has put in your heart to want to do? He's just saying, be sure that you do. Be sure that you do the thing that's going to bring you blessings beyond what you can imagine. But I get ahead of myself. Why is it commanded by God? Uh, Well, I suspect it's because hospitality is such a powerful way of showing the love of Christ in practical, tangible ways, both to your brothers and sisters in Christ and to the unbelievers that you know who need him. And you have what they need. Hospitality is simply God's preferred means of getting us there. So then, we must ask the question, if hospitality is commanded in the Bible, Why do we so often neglect it? That brings us to number four, hospitality neglected. There may be a number of reasons why believers neglect to open their homes to one another. It may be due to ignorance. Some believers in the church just don't realize how important it is to God that we are opening our homes, whether it's a big home or a small home or an unfinished home or whether it's an apartment or whatever it is. They may not have known how important this is to God. And perhaps that has been remedied this morning. Now you know. On the other hand, we need to consider the possibility that sometimes it just comes down to plain old, you ready? Selfishness. Selfishness. Once again, Alexander Strzok helps us. By the way, he has a a very short book on hospitality that's worthy of your reading. And I drew this quote from that. He says this, Selfishness is the single greatest enemy of hospitality. We do not want to be inconvenienced. We do not want to share our privacy, our time with others. We are consumed with our personal comforts. We want to be free to go about our business without the interference or concern of other people's needs. We don't want the responsibility and work that hospitality requires. We're greedy. We don't want to share our food, our home, our money. We're afraid that we will be used or that our property will sustain damage. And you could go on and on. Now, I don't know about you, but and I've read, read this quote I don't know how many times, and every time it stings my soul a little bit. I have to confess that at times I have had these attitudes. And you know what? Can we just admit this together? They're sinful. Sinful. It's the antithesis of Christian love. It opposes the example of Christ himself, and it disregards the promised rewards. And that brings us to number uh, number five. I almost said 25. Uh, Hospitality rewarded. The author of Hebrews 
said this in Hebrews 13 too. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, understand, with every promise that God gives, I'm sorry, every command that God gives, he gives us a corresponding promise, and many of them. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That's the command. And here is the promise, or the blessing. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, I don't think that he's saying that you should practice hospitality so that you'll have some kind of a mystical, angelic experience. That's not the promise here. But the general promise throughout is that you'll be blessed. You will be blessed. You will be blessed. He's simply pointing out that some in the Old Testament who practiced hospitality were unexpectedly blessed. Abraham and Sarah, each of these that I'm going to list off for you, had an angelic visit and maybe even God himself. Uh, Abraham and Sarah, Lot, the parents of Samson. You remember that one? They all discovered that the people that they were being hospitable toward were angelic visitors from heaven itself. Perhaps the lesson here is that the people who sacrifice for others are often those who are most blessed. After all, Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to what? To give than to receive. And that also is in Acts chapter 20. Like all the commandments of the Bible, showing hospitality comes with a promise of blessing. This will be good for us and for our children. It's been so good. You know, we've been here for 25 years, and over those 25 years, I can't tell you how many times we've had people in our home and our kids got so used to it. You know, when, when I was a kid and adults would come into the house, you know, the kids would scatter. And in our house, I remember the, the first time I noticed it and it, it kind of touched my heart and weirded me out at the same time. Uh, we, we, after dinner, we kind of push back and we go in, into the other room to have some adult conversation and all the kids come and pull up chairs. You're going to be a part of that. Why? Or they're just used to it just used to being there where mom and dad are and with whatever adults are in the room, they, I don't know what they're going to say, but it's, it's got to be interesting. <laughs> and some of it we're not supposed to know. <laughs> I'll say mom and dad are speaking in code again. Listen, the blessings for our children are innumerable. And, and one of the things that that stood out to me over the years, and most of our kids are grown now. Um, they would say all of them are, but um, one of the things that I, effect, I think affected them, whether they know it or not, is that every time a believer, or whether it was just someone from the church, or whether it was a guest speaker who came and had lunch with us, or whatever it was, um, they heard the gospel affirmed and reaffirmed and reaffirmed and reaffirmed and reaffirmed again. That's so valuable. So valuable. We will be more blessed by being hospitable than by keeping the drawbridge up and our hearts and wallets closed. My friends, there is great reward. Great reward for those who practice hospitality, who obey the command of God for the joy of God. And then number six, hospitality needed. So let's get a little more personal. I think this message hits on a big need here at Calvary Bible Church. God has done so many wonderful things in our midst, and he has caused you to be the most loving church that I have ever known. And other people see that, and they experience it when they visit. These people are loving. They love each other. It's, it's different. It's, it's strange. Um, nevertheless, and before I give you the nevertheless, let me just say this. Not only do I see deep, affectionate, sacrificial love among you all, and after the service, seeing it as you, as you pray together, um, some of you, and serve one another. But the other thing that I've noticed in the past 
probably five years since the previous church plant, that your love for one another and your hospitality has grown. You are more loving and more hospitable than we were five, six years ago. Nevertheless, I think we have room to grow in this area. After studying the topic again this week, I can't help but conclude that we're still a little weak in hospitality. Stronger, yes, much stronger even. But there's some areas of weakness. And maybe the areas of weakness are the people who just aren't engaging in hospitality. Truth be told, many of us have neglected this command of the Lord. And honestly, that needs to change. If that's you, you need to change. You need to change. You need to stop that. You need to stop keeping the drawbridge up. You stop thinking about going home as going to your refuge and nobody dare touch it or mess with it or my bank account or whatever. This is such an important issue right now as we move toward planting another church. It's getting closer and closer and it's, it's, it's coming on like a freight train. And it's going to be hard. This is going to be a hard one. There are now nearly 80 people who have, um, have made the connection or who have committed to going with the church plant. And I'm beginning to wonder if this should not be our focus for the next ministry year. And as the elders are considering that, let me exhort us all to repent of our selfishness and our lack of hospitality and begin opening our homes to one another for true fellowship. And I mean today. I mean today. Like say to someone, hey, uh, maybe lunch is too soon? Is lunch too soon? If lunch isn't too soon, you want to come over for lunch? Or you want to go out to lunch? It doesn't have to be in your home. Um, or, you know, tonight, maybe tonight, maybe, maybe this afternoon I'll be cleaning the house so you can come over tonight. <laughs> Would you come over to our house? I was blessed to hear my wife talking to a couple this morning as I ran in to say hello on my way back down here uh, to hear her setting up uh, a meal, a dinner at our home. And praise God for that. How do you do that? Well, you say, how do you have fellowship in your home? Well, invite a family or two over to your house. If you're an unmarried adult, invite a few friends over to your place. How's that? Does that feel like legalism? Invite a few friends over. And when they come, here's some practical suggestions. Share a meal. You don't have to spend a lot of money. I remember in the early days when Doug and Selah Helms were a part of this church, and uh, he was an elder here. I remember him inviting us over to dinner at his house, and I still remember the meal. It was, um, uh, it was pork and beans and uh, some um, cornbread. Of course, this is the South, so that's what we had. And I hadn't had that in years. And it was a simple meal. We were all young families. None of us had any money. And I remember learning from them. We don't have to have anything elaborate. That's not the point. The food's not the point. Boys, listen carefully. <laughs> the food's not the point. So invite some folks over to your place, wherever your place is. Share a meal or a dessert. And, of course, coffee. And then, as you're talking and laughing and enjoying each other's company, open your Bible. Read a scripture. And have some conversation about what you just read. Or maybe what someone else read in their time in the Word this week. It's something that, that came across to your private, it, it came across your heart as you were reading in the Word in your own private time. Or maybe something from a sermon or a Sunday school lesson. And then before your guests leave, gather everyone together to sing a hymn or something that, that glorifies Jesus some spiritual song, and then pray together. It doesn't have to be long, especially if you have children. Maybe, maybe one or two people pray. You don't have to have all oh, 20 of your family members, those two families that meet. <laughs> and so let me, let me make this real simple in bullet points. You ready? Here we go. How do you do hospitality? Gather, eat, sing, read, 
pray. Can you say that with me? Gather, eat, sing, read, pray. Say it again. Gather, eat, sing, read, pray. And just enjoy it. If you have never done that in your home, I just can't even verbalize how wonderful it is. So do it for your own joy. Understand that true fellowship is a matter of the heart, and the Spirit of God must empower it, but you and I are called to use the means that we have to facilitate true fellowship through the practice of hospitality. And perhaps there are some here who feel you're, you're having a hard time breaking into fellowship in this church. I hope that's not the case, but from time to time that happens. Before you decide you're going to leave the church because people aren't very friendly, can I just make a suggestion to you? Before you check out and leave, would you commit to having 10 people or 10 couples or 10 families over to your house for something light, like coffee and dessert, and some discussion on a Bible verse, and some singing, and a little bit of prayer. Ten times. Okay, I'd be willing to go down to five. Five times before you leave this church. And you know what I think will happen? You're going to establish friendships that you never dreamed you would have. And your roots are going to creak and groan as they grow deeper and to love for Christ and love for his church. Will you take that challenge? I bet you the Lord's going to bless you in ways that you can never imagine. Oh, beloved, how kind the Lord has been to call us to himself, to form us into a local oikos of God, household of God. How blessed we are to belong to Calvary Bible Church and to Christ and may the Lord find us faithful in our ministry of hospitality, not just to one another, but even to people who may live next door, or you meet at work, or whatever. Um, and do it for the glory of God and for your own joy. Now, some of you who are hearing my voice, this is all a little bit foreign, because you don't know Jesus. And the Jesus that you hear about or the things that you hear about Christian on the news sounds a whole lot different than what you've heard this morning. And that's because it is. Um, real Christianity is grounded in love for Jesus Christ that does something to your heart. And it starts not with our love for him, but his love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent his son not to condemn the world, but that through, through him the world would be saved. Through him, men and women would be drawn out of darkness and into light, into the fellowship with Christ. I plead with you, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't live in relationship with Jesus, come to him today. Come. Come to him. He, he himself said, come to me, all of you who are weary and are heavy burdened with your guilt and your shame and your sin, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Get rid of that one you're carrying and learn from me for I am meek and lowly at heart, and you will find, what's the word? Rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Why? Because it's from him. He will carry it for you and with you. You say, how do I get that? You come to Jesus, and you just say to him what you know is true about yourself, that you're a sinner, Confess to him, Lord, I have nothing to offer you but my sin. Will you accept me? Will you receive me? And I can tell you the answer. The answer is yes. You say, but you don't know my sin. You don't know how, how horrific it is and how long. It doesn't matter. Your sin is not greater than God's. 
He will forgive if you will come. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your grace, your kindness to us. And you've caused us to be born again to a living hope. We freely admit that we don't always act like it. But we want to more and more. We want to live in gospel community. We want to make the invisible gospel visible in the way that we love one another and forgive one another, serve one another, rank ourselves under one another. No, Father, only you can do that. And only you can bring salvation to those who have yet to embrace it. Father, would you give it to them today by your grace, by the power of your spirit, and for your glory, and for their great joy. These things we pray in Jesus' name.